on General Washington's occupying the camp at White Marsh. Sir William Howe thought it proper to move towards him, and the army marched accordingly on the 5th of December. The Queen's Rangers were ordered to flank the right of the baggage. The army encamped on Chestnut Hill in its vicinity, and the picket of the Rangers made fires in the road that led to it, so that the approach of any parties of the enemy could easily be seen. The army remained the next day in the same position. On the 7th, at night, Major Simcoe with the Queen's Rangers and a party of dragoons under Captain Lord Cathcart took up the position of some of the troops who had retired. This post was some time afterwards quitted in great silence, and he joined the column that was marching under General Gray. The general marched all night, and on approaching the enemy's outpost, he formed his column into three divisions. The advanced guard of the center con consisted of Hessian Jaggers, who marched with their cannon up the with their cannon up the road that led through the wood, in which the enemy's light troops were posted. The light infantry of the guards advanced upon the right, and the Queen's Rangers on the left. The enemy were outflanked on each wing, and were turned in attempting to escape by unparalleled swiftness of the light infantry of the guards, and driven across the fire of the Jaggers and the Queen's Rangers. The loss of the rebels was computed at near a hundred, with little or none on the part of the king's troops. A mounted man of the Queen's Rangers in the pursuit was killed by a Jagger, through mistake. He wore a helmet that had been taken from a rebel patrol a few days before. General Gray was pleased to express himself highly satisfied with the order and rapidity with which the Rangers advanced. The night was passed in a wood not far from the enemy's camp. The next day, Major Simcoe patrolled in the vicinity. He left the infantry of his party at the edge of the wood and approached a house, the owner of it, who supposed that all British soldiers wore red, was easily imposed upon to believe him a rebel officer, and a cowbell being, as preconcerted, rang in the wood. And an officer galloping to Major Simcoe and telling him that the British were marauding and hunting the cattle, the man had no doubt of the matter, and instantly acquiesced in a proposal to fetch some more cavalry to seize the British. He, accordingly, mounted his horse and galloped off. The ambush was properly laid for whomsoever he should bring, and when Captain Andre came with orders to retreat, the column being already in motion, the infantry were scarce sent off and the mounted men following, when about thirty of the rebel dragoons appeared in sight and on the gallop, and they fired several carbine shots no purpose. The army returned to Philadelphia. The disaster that happened to the mounted ranger determined Major Simcoe to provide high caps which might at once distinguish them both from the rebel army and, and their own. The mounted men were termed hussars, were armed with a sword and such pistols as could be bought or taken from the enemy. Major Simcoe's wish was to add a dagger to these arms, not only as useful in close action, but to lead the minds of the soldiers to expect the, the decisive mode of combat. Several good horses had been taken from the rebels, so that the hussars were now well mounted on hardy, serviceable horses, which bore very unusual share of fatigue. Lieutenant Wickham, an officer of quickness, courage, and courage, was appointed to command them, and a sergeant of the 16th Regiment of the Light Dragoons attended their parade to give them regularity in its duties. Several men having deserted, Major Simcoe directed that the countersign should not be given to the sentinels. They were ordered to stop any persons at, at a distance, more than one, until the guard turned out, and in posting of the sentinels, the rule was to place them so that, if possible, they could see and not be seen, and in different posts in the night from those of the day. 
near high roads, double sentinels, without being loaded, were advanced beyond the front of the chain. These were composed of old soldiers who, with all others, were sedulously instructed to challenge very loud. The sentinels were relieved every hour. The subaltern frequently patrolled, as did the captain of the day and the field officers. The consequence was that the Queen's Rangers never gave false alarm or had a sentinel surprise during the war. It is remarkable that a man deserted at this time who left all his necessaries, regimentals excepted. He had lately come from Europe and, to all appearance, had enlisted merely to facilitate his joining the rebel army. It may be here a proper place to describe the country in front of Philadelphia and the general duties on which the Queen's Rangers were employed during the winter. The road on the right, the nearest the Delaware, has been already mentioned by the name of the Frankfurt Road. From the center of Philadelphia, the main road led up the country, about two miles off at the rising sun. It branched into the old York Road on, its, on the right, and that of Germantown on the left. The light infantry of the guards patrolled up the Yorktown Road, as of, as of that the line did the Germantown. Those that ran on the side of Schulkill were in front of the Jaggers, Jaggers and patrolled by them. The Queen's Rangers, by their position, were at greatest distance from Washington's camp, which was now at Valley Forge, beyond the shoe, the shoe kill. And as the course of the Delaware inclined away from the shoe kill, the distance was considerably increased, so that no detachment from his camp could have been made without extreme hazard from the Yorktown Road, therefore, on the left, and the Delaware River on the right. Major Simcoe felt no apprehensions. When he passed the Frankfurt Creek in front, he was guided he was to be guided by circumstances. The general directions he received to secure the country and facilitate the inhabitants in bringing their produce to market to prevent this intercourse, the enemy added to the severe exertions of their civil powers, their militia. The roads, the creek, and the general inclination of the inhabitants to the British government and to their own profit aided the endeavor of the Queen's Rangers. The redoubt on the right had been garrisoned by the Corotil. On Major Simcoe's representation that the duty was too severe, it was given to the line. Within this redoubt, the Corps fitted up their barracks. The 4th of January was the first day since their landing at the head of the Elk that any man could be permitted to unaccouter. There is not an officer in the world who is ignorant that permitting the soldier to plunder or maraud must inevitably destroy him, that, in a civil war, it must alienate the large body of people who, in such a contest, are desirous of neutrality and sour their minds into dissatisfaction. But, however obvious the necessity may be, there is nothing more difficult than for a commander-in-chief to prevent marauding. The numerous orders that are extant in King Charles's and the Parliament's army to prove it that in those dreadful times, the Duke of Argyle, in his description of the Dutch auxiliaries in the year 1715, who says, who, he says, were mighty apt to mistake friend for foe, exemplifies the additional difficulty where foreign troops are combined with natives. No officer could possibly feel the attention that was necessary to this duty more strongly than Major Simcoe and he thought himself warranted to declare, when a general order was given out to enforce it, that it was with the utmost satisfaction Major Simcoe believes that there would have been no necessity for the general orders of this day, had every corps of the army been as regular in respect to their abstaining from plunder and marauding as the rangers. He trusts that so truly a military behavior will be continued, that the officer and soldier of the corps will consider it an honorable 
will consider it as an honor to him as the most distinguished bravery. Major Simcoe took care to prevent the possibility of plunder, as much as lay in his power. He never halted, if he could avoid it, but in a wood, sent safeguards to every house, allowed no man in marching to quit his ranks, and was, in general, successful in instilling into the minds of the men that while they protected the country, the inhabitants would give every information of the enemy's movements and ambushes. The officers were vigilant in their attention to this duty, and the soldiers had admirable examples of discipline and good order from the native loyalists of the corps, who were mostly non-commissioned officers. On the contrary, the rebel patrols, who came to stop the markets, were considered by the country people as robbers, and private signals were everywhere established by which the smallest party of the rangers would have been safe in the patrolling country. The general mode that Major Simcoe adopted was to keep perfectly secret the hour, the road, and the manner of his march, to penetrate in one body about ten miles into the country. This body generally marched in three divisions, one hundred yards from each other, so that it would have required a large force to have embraced it in a whole ambush, and in either division, being upon the flank, it would have been hazardous for an enemy so inferior in every respect but numbers as the rebels were to have encountered it. At ten or twelve miles the corps divided, ambushed different roads, and at the appointed time returned home. There was not a bypath, bypath or ford unknown, and the hussars would generally patrol some miles in front of the infantry. The market people, who, overnight, would get into the woods, came out on the appearance of the corps, and proceeded uninterruptedly, and from the market they had an escort. Whenever it was presumed that the enemy was on the Philadelphia side of Frankfurt to intercept them on their return into the woods. The infantry, however inclement the weather, seldom marched less than 90 miles a week, and the flank companies, the Highlanders, and the Hussars frequently more. These marches were, by many people, deemed adventurous, and the destruction of the corps was frequently prophesied. The detail that has been exhibited and experienced takes away all appearance of improper temerity, and, by these patrols, the corps that was formed to that tolerance of fatigue and marching which excelled that of the chosen light troops of the army, as will hereafter be known. These matters have been dwelt upon, not only as they exhibit what is conceived to have been the drilling of the Queen's Rangers for more important services, but as it proves that the protection of Philadelphia and the opening away to its markets were provided for by Sir William Howe, and that his orders were systematically and industriously obeyed. The Hussars, by this time, were increased to thirty, and mounted on such horses as they had taken from the enemy, and Ensign Proctor was added to them. The country in front of Philadelphia was foraged, and the Queen's Rangers formed the advance guard of the parties which made it. But it was with great reluctance that Major Simcoe, Simcoe saw point no point included in the general forage, as he had taken particular care to preserve it from plunder. It is impossible to protect any country from the depredations of foraging parties. The clothing of the provincials was served by contract. The duties of the Queen's Rangers would have been worn out much better, they were obliged by the inclemency of the weather to wear new clothes, without altering, it being determined for the next year to clothe the provincials in red. Major Simcoe exerted himself to preserve the rangers in green, and to pro procure for them green waistcoats. His purpose was to wear the waistcoats with their sleeves during the campaign, and to add sleeves to the shell or outer coat to be worn over the waistcoats in winter. Green is without comparison the best color for light troops with dark accoutrements, and, 
If it put on in the spring, by autumn it nearly fades with the leaves, preserving its characteristic of being scarcely discernible at a distance.